0: From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival.
1: Hey, hey welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And we have a very special episode for you all today, our first episode dedicated to the filmmakers of LADFF this year. But before we get into it, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe to Film Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for weekly episodes, where we not only do episodes highlighting LADFF filmmakers like we're doing today, we also interview filmmakers with new releases hitting theaters, and we have our patented themed Gimme Three episodes So like, subscribe, comment on Film Forward. We've got plenty coming up, plenty in our archives as well. As I mentioned, though, we have an incredible guest today. She's a screenwriter. She's a commercial director, a documentary film director, and her new dark comedy film, Freeze, will be a part of this year's Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And it's streaming from August 1st through August 5th at LADFF.com. Maya Albanese. Maya, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Tell us about your fun, crazy, and scary movie, Freeze.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love that you think it's scary. Well, Freeze is definitely a mix of genres. It is meant to be a sort of tragicomedy about a very optimistic woman who kind of gets pissed on at every turn by the patriarchy, which was... Inspired a bit by one of my favorite novels of all time, Voltaire's Candide. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that lots of satires we've seen throughout history, like Candide, are about a male protagonist and his experience from the male perspective. And wouldn't it be interesting to tell a sort of modern day Candide from the female gaze and female perspective? And so in Freeze, Joy. Is living what seems like a perfect fairy tale life, according to, you know, the princess movies and various cultural elements she may have grown up with as a woman. And when she loses it all unexpectedly out of her control, she's left with the tick tock of her biological clock and increasing baby fever and this realization that time is running out for her. And then the movie continues onward through a series of increasingly dark romantic misadventures that convey, you know, what is this interior psychology of the woman running out of time to have kids?
1: I hadn't thought about the Candide thing. So I'm excited to watch it again with that lens. That's really interesting and and really awesome because that once you gave me your three picks, also I looked at, I watched the movie again from another different lens. Each time I watched it, I like take new things away from it, which is the mark of a really special piece. There's a lot to love and a lot to unpack with this movie. As you mentioned, there's a lot of comedic elements, but it's a somewhat uncomfortable, but very like real and everyday relatable subject. Talk to us about finding the balance between, you know, tension and comedy, both in your writing process and, you know, when you're directing the film on set.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, tone is definitely important and a fine line that you walk When you're doing dark comedy specifically, it's very challenging. And the more nuanced comedy and the more genre bending your film, the more you really do have to think about tone in the writing process, in the shooting process, and in the editing process. And in fact, in my experience with this film, the editing process was almost the most crucial stage Mm. in determining what the tone was going to be, which I could elaborate on a little bit more later if you'd like. But in general, as soon as I sit down to write a script, it seems like the tone is something that sorts itself out. I it's not even something I intellectually determine. Mm-hmm. It is funneling out of the story, the characters, and quite frankly, how I feel about them and the subject matter. So when I wrote Freeze, it was I mean, it was like me vomiting onto the page, the experiences I was having. As a 30 something woman who is balancing trying to be a film director and a writer and wanting to have a family. And I was getting into these situations or having these conversations that were just so messed up that they were funny. And, you know, that was the tone. I was like, it's so messed up, it's funny. And I think that is a huge part of satire. This is a satire, you know, Voltaire's Candide is a satire. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my, favorite films that inspired me, which we'll talk about later, are dark satires. And, you know, you kind of have to take reality, heighten it a little bit. And that way you can see just how messed up it is. And then that makes you laugh. That's kind of the tone of freeze and what I think closest mirrors our reality, navigating our lives.
1: 100%. Yeah, that's, it's uh, the world we're living in. Uh, or like, that's the world I think Almost every generation has been living in, you know, like going back to Voltaire. Stuff gets dark and what can you do except for try and laugh the pain away. Helping you out with this, you guys have a stellar, stellar cast. You got Chris Parnell, Adrian Grenier, Mindy Sterling, who is just so amazing in everything she does. I want to talk a little bit about Nora Zahetner, uh, your lead. She is just really wonderful. She plays so many levels of energy with like a master stroke. Talk to us about collaborating with her on this character and what it was like working with her on set.
2: Yeah, Nora is our perfect Joy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think, I'm glad that you see that and feel that way when you watch the film. I think, you know, for Joy, I wanted someone who looked like a Joy. She had an angelic face and an angelic disposition and someone who with mud thrown all over her face by society there would still be an innocence and a beauty that would shine through that. And the combination of the two would, again, aid the satire. And I think in general, in the casting process, for everything I do, I mean, I'm a commercial director as well and have done quite a few commercials like this where the lines between real people and actors are a little bit blurred. And so I think I'm often looking for someone who walks into casting or... Who I audition, who kind of is that person. Uh, They're so believable. It feels authentic. Maybe because I started as a documentary filmmaker and went to graduate school for documentary filmmaking, I have a pretty strong BS meter. And I, even in satire and in heightened caricatures, I still want to kind of believe that, you know, that woman or that man is that guy or that girl.
1: 100%. Yeah. She nails it. Yeah. It totally makes sense. The other thing I want to talk about is your really brilliant and kind of surreal set design, like from the first scene, we're kind of taken into this like Gilliam-esque, which we'll touch on later, but this kind of Gilliam-esque, you know, setting of these eggs getting froze and you have these really amazing small set pieces of Nora surrounded by ticking clocks. Like it's just really fun uh, and simultaneously like kind of frightening, unsettling set design. Were these concepts, you know, in the script? And then if they were, how did how did you work with your production designer to kind of like see them through on a short film, which is not easy to do?
2: Well, you hit it on the head with the not easy to do on a short film. <laughs> Let me tell you.
1: Um,
2: I'm glad you like it because any other filmmaker, directors listening to this know we watch our films, especially short films where we didn't have you know, all the money in the world, all the things we wished we could have done but <laughs> yeah. didn't get executed. So I'm glad that it comes across still with what we had. It was definitely a labor of love. And everything I write is genre-bending, fantasy or world-building or sci-fi. And so production design is just so important. And I do find that the most rewarding, although also the most challenging aspect of the process. For Freeze, it was always... Written into the script. I think pretty much everything you see was written in the script. And I really wanted the present day at the fertility clinic to be the most eerie and surreal and go the highest in, as you say, Mm Gilliam-esque visuals. And obviously with the angry female mob outside the clinic, which is meant to represent a collective female psyche banging to get in and procreate. That's really the, you know, hypothesis of the heightened production design out there. But I wanted the the backstory as we unravel it to be pretty rooted in reality. Like this was her life and it went down and down and down until it hit this point and pushed her into this place, which is the fertility clinic where things start to feel really dystopian. That's a little sort of about the overarching vision for the production design in terms of actually executing it. I mean, some of it is just, you know, magic tricks you pull out of your hat with your production designer, you can't believe you pull them off. And other things are just really clever workarounds that end up actually being better sometimes in the end. Mm -hmm. give you a little anecdote, which is the cold open. So I wanted the cold open to be male fertility scientists carrying around women's eggs and sort of dressed and dancing like ballerinas because I think there's just so much... Sad humor in the way fertility and, you know, just the medical system in general treats women and women's bodies. And we didn't have enough money to rent out a fertility clinic or, you know, the permissions to, nor did we have enough to even buy all the machines (laughs) and set one up ourselves. (laughs) Right. So we shot on a white psych, you know, and we have one fertility scientist and one cryogenic freezer and we cloned them. We put little markers on the white psych and in post, we cloned them awesome. and mirrored them. So in so in that overhead shot, you're actually seeing the same scientist and the same freezer. I hope Hopefully that's, you know, interesting to people listening to that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And not only is it interesting, you like totally fooled me. Like I've seen the movie, I don't know, four or five times and I had no idea. So excellent work.
2: Thanks. <laughs> we tried.
1: <laughs> but, you know, like as you're talking about, you know, like the set design and you're talking about your editing earlier and and this, this blend of dark comedy, you know, adding to this kind of dystopian world based off of a real subject that women are going through. Every single day combined, it adds to this like kind of like heart pounding, you know, sense of unease that I feel people in their 30s are just kind of like going through. Like anytime anybody brings up that subject, you're gripping your seat. So you your film has put the viewer in that position so masterfully. It's really amazing to watch.
2: Well, thank you. I definitely, I mean, there's so much I could say about that, like the subject matter and the theme there's obviously so many topics within fertility. There's Mm -hmm. infertility, there's male infertility, there's couples trying to get pregnant, there's IVF, there's all these things. I really just wanted to isolate this one part Mm -hmm. of it is the idea of being told that your time is running up and how that affects your psyche as a woman. And it's a story that I think a woman should tell who's been through it and going through it, acted out by a woman who's been through it and is going through it. And I think it's in some ways like a love letter to 30-something women alive today to say, hey, I, there are other people who feel like you. We understand your experience. And there's some things about the way the system is set up in a patriarchy that is not helping us. So it is trying to convey that as well. Yeah, I just think the tone and the feeling you're talking about of eeriness or discomfort is 100% how I feel, how my girlfriends feel in various ways the way they're treated by men because of their age or the way they're treated by a male fertility doctor or a system where... It's for profit and psychologically manipulating women to spend money on something that only has a 5% chance of actually working. Right. You know, I mean, list goes on and on.
1: Yeah, absolutely incredible. What has been the response from, because you guys have been in the festival circuit for, you know, for a while now. What has been the response from women in their 30s as the audience? Have you gotten any feedback?
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) it's been a very strange last year and a half. Uh Um, You know, unfortunately, freeze was slated to premiere in Cannes and that didn't ha- happen. Oh my gosh. Then. Yeah. So we premiered at series fest because freeze is a proof of concept for a television show. We have a television show and a feature version of this out in the world now, um, looking for takers. And uh, we premiered at series fest, which is an amazing episodic festival run by incredible people, actually mostly women. and. That was in June of last year. So that's when we officially kicked off for Festival Circuit. And it actually ended up winning Best Short and Best Actress at its premiere. So it was a pretty nice start to the process that seems like women liked it and men liked it too. Yeah. (laughs) I was kind of flabbergasted because I just feel like, you know, during the pandemic, we... Especially if you're an independent artist like me, you're just like living in an isolated vacuum. And you just have no idea, like... I haven't even gotten to see my film in a live screening in a physical theater yet with people, so because of the pandemic. So even though we've gotten into I don't know almost forty festivals now, but the feedback I've gotten, you know, piecemeal and and from people writing me on social media or reviews we've gotten or our distributors who picked us up, et cetera, et cetera, is just that yeah, like nobody's making films like this, films that are entertaining and funny, but about this subject matter. And that was the experience we had too in getting the short financed and cast with such high caliber actors, which also was a total shock and delightful surprise to me, was that it's just like an under-discussed subject matter specifically from the female perspective and female gaze and with this comedic lens held up to it.
1: Absolutely. Well, you and the team, they just, everybody hit the nail on the head. It's a really incredible, Artistic, hilarious, just gut punch of a film. Everybody at home, you guys can check it out. Freeze will be at the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival as a part of the Shorts block. That's what she said, which is all female directed comedies. It'll be available from August 1st through August 5th at ladff.com. LADFF.com for more tickets and info. We're going to take a short break, everybody. And when we come back, Maya is going to help us out with our favorite segment, Gimme Three.
0: The Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival is back. And for the first time ever, the festival will include both in-person and online screenings. Three in-person screenings will be held over three Thursdays starting July 29th with the musical rom-com Best Summer Ever held at the Lemley Town Center in Encino. August 5th, we're back in Encino for the theatrical premiere of the gripping documentary In the Dark of the Valley. And on August 12th, you'll be able to see the award-winning short films selected by our esteemed jury at the Lemley NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Our online festival will be available at LADFF.com from August 1st through 14th, with new films premiering every five days. Tickets for both in-person and online screenings are available right now at LADFF.com. Use the promo code FORWARD for 10% off. We are so excited to see you all back at the movies. Join us for the 8th Annual Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival.
1: All right, everybody. Welcome back to Film Forward. We're chatting with Maya Albanese. Her film Freeze will be at LADFF this year. Right now, she's about to hook us up with three film recommendations. Films that have inspired her, inspired her work. Maya, my friend, let's get your first one.
2: Okay, well, I picked movies that might not be very obscure.
1: <laughs> it's all good.
2: My first movie is Beetlejuice. And Beetlejuice was directed by Tim Burton, the legend. And I love this film because it is a fantasy comedy and very genre-bending. I think it makes you laugh and also terrifies you at the same time, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite Ways that films genre bend. I also think it's just so imaginative and world building. I remember watching it as a kid and thinking I'd never seen anything like it. Particularly the waiting room scene in (laughs) Beetlejuice is something I think about all the time and was something I thought about with Freeze. How do you take this kind of setting that we've all been in at some point and just make it about death? and make it funny, but also creepy.
1: Yeah. You know, you said when I was a kid, I hadn't seen anything like it. I mean, I don't think we've still seen anything like it. (laughs) Whatever 20, 30 years later, it's like, it still really holds up as this completely unique, fresh out of this world movie for Sonia's birthday. During the pandemic, we rented like a private movie theater because we hadn't been to the theater in, you know, whatever it was at that point, six months or something. And we were going crazy. So we rented a theater and we watched Beetlejuice. And it was like such an incredible experience to like go back to the theater and like see that movie on the big screen. Cause it's just like filled with so much joy and like energy. And it's like about mortality and everything. Like it was just like the perfect, perfect movie to watch in the middle of a pandemic in the theater with just us. But yeah, it's just like, it's so inventive and it's, it still continues to be inventive. And you know, the thing I was thinking about when I was, when I watched it recently was like, everybody talks about like Michael Keaton's performance and for very good reason. Like it's, it's incredible, but rewatching it, I was like, you know, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin do not get enough credit for this movie because they bring such like a real sense of like heart and tragedy and the movie just totally does not work without, they're like very human. And you have like these out of these world characters, but they really ground it in this place that makes you, it gives you all the feels.
2: I completely agree. It's, I really don't have anything bad to say about that film. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, cast, the cast is incredible. And I think you're right. I think nothing has been made since Beetlejuice that is on par of that same kind of film. And that to me is the sign of, the greatest films of all time is there was never anything made and never will be anything quite like it. And I do love a goth sensibility and goth humor. And I think Tim Burton manages to do that without only appealing to people with gothic sensibility. Like he takes the macabre and, you know, things around the dead and, and makes them somehow whimsical and funny for, and palpable for anyone, including children, which I also something really remarkable about Tim Burton.
1: Yeah, it's, it must be his like childlike sense of, you know, imagination and the way he views the world. He's got a magic touch in that way, but absolutely. Beetlejuice, an excellent, excellent first choice, Maya. If you guys haven't seen Beetlejuice at home, for the love of God, what's the matter with you? But if you haven't seen it in a long time, rewatch it <laughs> because it's it's definitely worth the rewatch and it, it holds up for sure. Okay, Maya, your second choice.
2: Okay, my second film is Brazil, Mm -hmm. Terry Gilliam's Brazil, a 1985 film. This film has a lot in common with Beetlejuice, actually, in the sense of the way the sets are designed to be kind of lo-fi and whimsical for sure, and dark and terrifying, but also funny. I mean, when I watch Brazil, I laugh out loud every minute, but I also am completely terrified by what I'm watching. It's You know, based off of, or it's very Orwellian and based off of the book. Mm -hmm. It is much more political of a satire. Beetlejuice definitely has elements of satire in it, but Brazil is an outright, you know, dark satire that takes place in a dystopian world. And again, I think things are terrifying but also whimsical at the same time. And for whatever reason, you know, I grew up on these films, they Really influenced me, influenced my sensibility. I grew up reading all of the Grimm's fairy tales, for example, which are fairy tales for kids that are absurdly dark. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so, anyways, I think, you know, 1984, George Orwell's novel, I also grew up with, and Kafka, and all of that funnels into Brazil. Brazil is, again, another movie. I'm just not sure there's any other movie that's been made quite like it since or ever will be.
1: Yeah, completely agree. This is, I saw this movie for the first time when I was in a high school film class and a lot of it went over my head, but I was still like engrossed by it. The older I got, the more the the film made sense to me. But I think this is probably my favorite dystopian film of all time and, and one of my favorite movies of all time. But I think what makes it like stand out from other dystopian movies is, you know, a lot of dystopian movies tend to take place in the future, which like leaves you kind of removed from like the the threat, this one takes place. It just says in the, the beginning of the movie, it takes place someplace in the 20th century, and it combines like through set design and through like technology, like all these different time periods. It looks like the past kind of because it's got like this film noir kind of look. It like feels like the present based off of the people and what they're doing, but it also has like futuristic elements. So it's kind of like saying this is us. Past, present, and future. Like this is a commentary and a satire on all of those. And I think that's what makes it a stand the test of time and B so, you know, unnerving. <laughs> it's cause it's like this is this is us now. Like
2: I would say that it's if you watch Brazil right now today, it's disturbingly relevant, if not more relevant now than it was in nineteen eighty five.
1: One hundred percent, yeah. I totally agree. I rewatched it again a couple of days ago and I think this has got to be like one of the best first 10 minutes of a movie ever. Like so much stuff happens that's all like plays so well into the rest of the movie and he does such like an incredible job of like world building, character building, and setting up his themes and leaving his mark. This is Gilliam, in my opinion, at his very, very best.
2: Yeah, and it also, you know, isn't so far off from Voltaire's Candide either. Mm -hmm. Again, the idea of this optimistic or like softy or, you know, any kind of person you could just say is like, Innocently moving throughout a world gone awry and like what that says about this really messed up world. You know, although the characters are incredible and the story is incredible, really Brazil is about the world and Gilliam's probably annoyance, frustration or dark viewpoint on the inefficiencies of the way the world works. Absolutely, and injustices too. I mean, not just inefficiencies. <laughs> inefficiencies
1: <laughs> and injustices—they they, <laughs> they, they they go hand in hand. <laughs> Brazil—it's really an incredible film. You have to rent it right now, streaming, but it's definitely worth it. Check out—you know, like Secret Movie Club. If you're living in LA, Secret Movie Club plays it like once every year, once every two years. Like, I highly recommend seeing this movie in a theater. But if you can't wait. The Criterion Collection has a great release of Brazil with some great special features and it's worth it. So check it out. You're two for two, Maya. This is go- it's gonna be tough to, uh, to top Brazil, but let's see what you got for your third and final.
2: <laughs> well, again, I've got a third movie that is widely regarded as one of the best films of all time. So hopefully everyone's seen it, but if not, watch it or watch it again. I've probably watched it 20 times. It's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michelle Gondry, two of my greatest heroes, along with, I mean, pretty much Gondry, Kaufman, Burton, and Gilliam are my heroes right there.
1: (laughs) That's that's, that's your Mount Rushmore Um, of filmmakers.
2: It is. (laughs) I love to see a woman's face up there someday soon. But yes, it is a great group of filmmakers and Eternal Sunshine is just pure brilliance. It's similar to the other two films, in the sense that it again uses this kind of lo-fi production design to build a sci-fi-ish narrative, but it's very grounded in reality and very relatable and human. And I think it's just so brilliant. This film, the non-linear narrative and the way time is chopped up in it is so complex and it works. And it is so much more interesting to watch a film like that. My films all do that too. Just like nonlinear and jumping between time periods a lot because I just think it is one of the greatest gifts of cinema and and is a device of cinema that we can manipulate and chop up time because I think that psychologically we often have realizations in retrospect or the way we remember things of the past is a huge part of how we navigate the present. And so filmmaking is this like gift of a way to show that in retrospect on the screen. And I think because Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind is specifically about memory and erasing memory, the meta layers of, you know, of that are just, I mean, it's mind blowing. I can't even imagine editing this film. And then the other thing about Eternal Sunshine, which is relevant, that I love and inspires my own work, is the tragic comedy genre mm-hmm. and this feeling of melancholy. I do like melancholic films where there's kind of a smile inside of a tear or you're laughing, but you're also crying or you're just sort of, your heart's sort of exploding and you can't really figure out if it's sadness or happiness. And I just feel like the entire movie, Eternal Sunshine, is that tone.
1: Yeah, I agree with literally everything you said. I really don't have much to add. I just, I think this is a flawless film. Like it really is. Flawless, and the more times you watch it, the better it gets. Like each time you watch it, you like find new things in this in the frame. Like it's so meticulous and so meticulously like perfect. It's just a real treasure. (laughs) It really is just, and Jim Carrey is like, I mean, Kate Winslet is great in like absolutely everything, obviously. Like she is like one of the greatest dramatic actresses. But, you know, Jim Carrey is known for his comedy. And I think, obviously, he does some dramatic roles from time to time. But this is such, like, a departure for him. And he's so believable. For somebody like Jim Carrey to make you forget that he's Jim Carrey five minutes into the film, I don't know how that's even possible, but he does it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't cast this film any differently, that's for sure. And, I mean, I even get get sort of, like, emotional even just thinking about Mm -hmm. this film. It does also make me laugh out loud. But... It's definitely, it's also whimsical yeah. like Beetlejuice and Brazil, but it's much more melancholy, I think. And I think that's because the darkness in Eternal Sunshine is so deeply human and relatable. Whereas the darkness in say Brazil is, or Beetlejuice is like I said, it's it has a goth sensibility or it's clearly heightened caricatures for the satire. But Eternal Sunshine is like, So believable. Yeah.
1: This is the type of dark that makes you think about your own life uh, or things that happen there, like, oh, I'm going back there now. (laughs) That's a total, that hits you in a totally different way. (laughs) Totally. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. These are three banger choices, as the kids say, Maya. Bangers. (laughs) I really love all these movies, and I think they would all pair beautifully with your short film, Freeze, which is also a beautiful and incredible movie. We are so excited to have it at LADFF this year. Thank you thank you for submitting it and thank you for making it.
2: Thanks for watching and having it at the festival and, and having me on the podcast.
1: No problem. All you at home, check out Freeze. It's coming this August to LADFF from August 1st through August 5th. Freeze will be available at the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival as a part of the That's What She Said block. Get your tickets now at LADFF.com. You're not going to want to miss it. Maya, thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.